Hello, and welcome to Free and Clear, the show where we talk about the questions that people have about religious abuse. I'm John Collins, the founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have Naomi Wright, the founder of Naomi Wright Ministries. Naomi, how are you? I'm doing great, John, and I'm excited to be getting started on this project with you. I know we've been talking about it for a little bit here, and so here we go, right? Pilot episode one. Right. Yeah, this is exciting. This is something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and I'm I'm glad to partner with you to do this. Excellent. And yeah, so um, a little background about me. Uh, I am the founder and executive director of Naomi Wright Ministries, and My background is that I was uh, raised in a cult of Christianity. Um, I was literally told I was Christian, very much was not. Um, John, maybe we can link um, link like my eight minute kind of summary video for myself because I don't want to get too into it right now. Um, But if people want more of that background, they can click and get just an eight minute overview of what that looked like. Um, but through that, I started this organization and what, what we care about is assisting people in getting resourced, um, prevention and healing from unhealthy religious experiences. So also known as religious abuse cults and that whole spectrum. Awesome. Yeah, my background is very similar. I escaped a religious cult. Um, I've learned to label it. It was a extremist version of Christianity. It wasn't true Christianity. And I started researching and writing. I've written several books about the Latter Rain movement and William Branham in in particular, who um, the movement created several splinter groups of the cult that I escaped from. And over the past 10 years, I've been working to establish a network of support for people who were in that group and similar and uh, several of the splinter groups. And we have amassed several questions from people who are really interested in to learn what is Christianity. They escaped this thing that kind of looked like Christianity, but after they escaped and started to deprogram, they realized that it was nothing like Christianity. So I'm, I'm really excited about this project to work with Naomi. Naomi will be answering questions from the orthodox perspective of Christianity. And the boundaries of my questions basically are limited to what people have um, to learn more about what is true Christianity. If I leave the cult and I want to integrate into a new church, what does that look like? So we we have an exciting program ahead of us. Yeah, I'm looking forward forward to it. And yeah, so as far as like NWM goes, Naomi Wright Ministries goes, we are a religious organization. I'm very upfront about that. We have a statement of faith on our website. You can go read. Um, our board of directors, you know, have to sign that they affirm that in order to serve. But in our interactions with people, and I am a huge, huge advocate, I will step away and take my name with me if this ever changes. Um, we were very open to where people are at. My goal is not to make someone agree with me. My hope is that people who were told Christianity was something that it's really not can learn what it really is and then can choose it or not. Um, Just like they make a choice about any worldview that's out there for them to consider. And so that's my heart is you are lied to about what it really is I want you to know what it really is. So then you get to really make your free will choice of if you want it or not. Um, And as a specific example, in our mentoring services, Christianity doesn't necessarily come up at all. You know, I ask people in that first um, consultation, 15, 20 minute conversation that we have, what is your worldview right now? Is it helpful to you in any way to be able to talk about things like the Bible and, and Christianity and God. And if the person says no, then we just don't. Um, and that's, you know, anyone who's worked with a therapist out there, you probably don't know what their worldview is because it just doesn't necessarily have to come up. It's kind of irrelevant to the client. And so I handle the mentoring services in that same way. Um, but if someone is saying, I think there is a God, I want to figure this out. This is what, how the Bible was used. I'm happy. And I'm trained to be able to go through and help them do that. So it's totally up to what is best for that individual. So this is a fun project though. I'm going to speak fully from that Orthodox Christian worldview. Um, and yeah, let's try this. Let's see where it goes. Yeah. 
And and to be clear, so that everybody's on fully aware of, of what is going on in this show, <clears throat> I'm very much on the same page. I have no intent to prophesize. Um, my research is based off of a Christian perspective because it was a, in my opinion, it was a political cult that we escaped that was operating under the disguise of Christianity. And so therefore, a lot of my research is a Christian research, but I'm by no means trying to convert or persuade in this episode. It's really not, or in the show, it's not um, the, it's not the direction of the show. Um, also, the questions that I ask are not necessarily my own questions. I will be providing the face for the people who I've worked with for the past almost decade in these support groups. So these questions will be coming from people in the support groups and I'll become their face. And if you have questions that you would like on the show, please send them to me or Naomi. And we, um, we will be, you know, asking the questions and in a way that, that relates to the show, we may not be able to answer every question that's sent to us, but within the framework of the show, we, we would like to have an open discussion of the questions for people who would like to, like to have an answer. So let's get right into it, Naomi. You have a topic, and I'd like to see if we have some questions that match. Yeah, so this was fun, um, and I I don't know, you know, John, we didn't discuss what will actually be the official title of the episode, but basically one of the questions that we got um, when we kind of went out to the public with, hey, you know, you went forward and said, hey, I have this idea for a podcast series. Um, what are some questions y'all have? And one of the responses we got was, okay, if I leave this specific group that I'm a part of, I've been told I'm just, I'm automatically, I'm going to go to hell. So not only am I excommunicated by my people, but I, my salvation is gone. I have eternal damnation. So like, this is what they're being told. Um, not unfamiliar to either of us. We've heard that too. So I, I think that's a great question. Um, it's a really important question. It carries a lot of weight um, and it instills a lot of fear in people. So um, everyone who's listening, what we did with this was John said that I could pick the topic. And then I said, okay, you create the question. So I'm going to hand it back over to him. Um, and he's going to now kind of ask those questions and then I'll give an initialist response, but, um, John also has things to share. So, you know, there'll be some dialogue from there. All right. So let's get into it. Naomi. um, several people in our support networks, have described that their greatest fear in leaving the cult was it was literally a fear of life or death. If they remained in the cult, even if they knew the ideologies and the doctrines were wrong, they, they felt like there was life in the cult. And if they left it, they felt like there was death because they had been trained to believe that those who left would be condemned to hell. What do we say to people who are struggling with this indoctrination right now? Why does this fear exist and how does that indoctrinated fear differ from a healthy church? Yeah. So this is a huge question and I want to break it down because you ask a couple of really good things in there. And so I want to address each part on its own. Um, first, something that comes up that to me is just, it's interesting to think about is what what do you, since you're representing this voice and ask you, even though it may not specifically be you, what do you mean by that quote? There was life, even if the ideologies and doctrines were incorrect. So do you mean like in eternal salvation? Well, so I'll speak from my own experience, which is very similar to what some of the others that I've spoken with. There was such an indoctrinated fear and we had a lot of cognitive dissonance. There were things that we knew that were wrong, but in, mentally, we basically just explained them away. And whenever we talk about the life that was inside of the cult, the one, the, the cult that I escaped was a doomsday cult. So outside of it, literally, there was like, it was physical death. It wasn't just spiritual death. People who were not in this were to, you know, doom, doomed on earth and in hell. So whenever, whenever I discuss the, the life perspective from people who were in these support networks, they literally scared, they were literally fearing their own death if they left the cold. Yeah. So this is, 
This is such a powerful question because it speaks to how powerful the mind is. And this is why, because the mind is so powerful, that's why these abusive leaders want to control our minds because they know that if they control the mind, they get, they get access then to the rest of the person, including the person's actions. And interestingly enough in therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy is a foundational um, practice for therapists, uh, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And the basic premises of it is if someone changes their thoughts, a change in their behavior will follow. And so again, it speaks to how, how powerful the mind is. So logically, if the ideologies and the doctrine were wrong, then my question back would be, and this is rhetorical right now, but how could they really offer life to people that would be logically incongruent. So it's like, I'm choosing to believe my child didn't steal, even though I see the new clothes in his closet, or I choose to believe my spouse isn't having an affair, even when I heard the voice in the background on the phone. Um, While in one way, this incongruence does protect us from the immediate pain of the realization we would have cognitively. And so in a way, it's protecting us temporarily from that harm. And another way, it's really just postponing it till later. So if we disallow ourselves from the opportunity to accept the truth, then we can't heal from the pain and losses and genuinely be able to move on into freedom. I think right. that is such a tragic loss. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that helped me, I'm, I'm real big in trying to understand. It's not just leaving the cult that helps you become free. You really have to understand what is this thing that I was in and how does it differ from people who weren't in this thing that I was in? So one of the things that I've learned in just simply studying other cults, there are cults that have physical boundaries. They're in communes, there are walls, and they're isolated from the rest of the world because they're in a physical boundary. But the vast majority, there's something like 10,000 cults in the United States alone, the majority of them have no physical boundaries. They're um, basically mental boundaries, and those boundaries are usually created by fear. There's a fear created by severing, You basically take your group and you isolate it from the rest of the world. You become severed from the rest of the world. And then the rest of the world becomes demonized. So these people who are in these types of unhealthy religious groups are basically indoctrinated to believe a very demonic worldview of of those outside of the cult. And with that demonic worldview, you know, comes the death and the fear but it's, it's literally fear by example. If somebody leaves, then you shun them or you excommunicate them or you cut them off. You're creating, you're establishing fear and you're establishing that mental boundary. Yeah. And as you were just talking, John, it kind of hit me that there's, there is a difference between being able to see, okay, yes. If, if I come forward with questions, even maybe it's as simple as I have questions as we've both seen, or maybe it's to a further degree of, I'm going to step away from this group. I'm not going to attend this church anymore. And you've seen other people get shunned. You've seen them get excommunicated. So you know, that that's coming, you know, that's going to happen. So that's based on actual factual data, right? They can't give you that for if you're going to go to hell or not, there's no, there isn't factual data that they've been able to give you or show you. And so I'd encourage you to question that because what, what's the evidence that that's going to happen because you've stepped away from out from under their control. I mean, like you said, I mean, this fear exists because they've been conditioned to be afraid. I mean, that was intentional. It was intentional for them afraid. If I'm talking to any parents out there, you might've intentionally made your afraid, your kid afraid to run across the street without looking both ways, because you're afraid they're going to get hit by a car. So you intentionally that fear, right? Well, they're intentionally using fear. And then my next question would be, okay, they're intentionally using fear for control and for what? Well, it's benefiting someone somehow. And that would be another question I'd put out there. Right. So let's go to the next question. This fear is not common to only one single cult of personality. We're now seeing television series and documentaries that 
are capturing the difficult journey out of a cult. And the fear of going to hell seems to be a very common theme among them all. <clears throat> Why is this so common among the destructive groups? And what purpose does this type of fear serve? Yeah, so I can answer that that first one pretty succinctly, and then I'll add on it, add on a little bit in the second part. But why is this common among destructive groups? Well, because of the purpose this type of fear serves, it's serving them. So they're using it um, intentionally for their purposes. And what purpose does it serve? It definitely serves the purpose of control. When they're saying that someone's going to have I mean, it's an ultimate fear, one that would last for eternity, right? If you're getting told you're right. going to this awful place and you're going to be there indefinitely, that's the ultimate fear to give someone. It's not like, okay, I'm going to die and I get out of it. It's not like I'm cursed and for the rest of my life, I can, you know, wait till my life's over. I mean, this is never going to end. And personally, when I was a hospice social worker, I saw people who had been fine not to believe in any religion all of their lives. And then suddenly when they were face-to-face -face with their death, they became scared. They suddenly had questions and quite honestly, they wanted to have hope for something because now they were like, right, you know, knocking on the door, so to speak. And they wanted to carry on in some way and, you know, have some hope of seeing their loved ones again in the future. So when I think about those experiences that I've had, um, I've seen hundreds of people pass away to when I imagine threatening that to someone who had believed in an afterlife forever. And now they're being told that that afterlife is going to be hell. I mean, that is a huge threat that carries with it a ton of power for the one who's saying it, especially if you really right. believe that that leader can, can give it to you. Right. I, whenever I was making my escape, uh, again, I'm, I'm very big in understanding how things work. And one of, one of the biggest examples that I could find in history was Martin Luther. He led the Protestant Reformation. They escaped what he saw as destructive within the Catholic church and basically formed the religion that the splinter groups that I was in came out of. And whenever, whenever he was leaving the Catholic church, one of the, the, one of the problems was that the Catholic church was really big into using the fear of purgatory and hell as a control method, but they took it beyond that. They also had sales of indulgences. So not only were they controlling you with this fear, they wanted you to, to give them money for this fear that they had created, right? And I was reading a sermon. I've read several sermons by Martin Luther. And uh, to paraphrase one of them I read, he, he went into this subject of talking about hell, which was unusual for the ones that I'd read. And he says, I don't preach hell. And again, I'm paraphrasing. He says, I don't preach hell. None of my congregation has any desire to go there. So why would I talk about a place <laughs> that, that none of them want to go? And, you know, the, the point that he was trying to drive at was it had been used in his life for such a point of control from the Catholic church <clears throat> that he decided he was not going to control his congregation. And it made, in my mind, it made a clear separation of what other Christians see, you know, and how their views to hell. It's not, it's not this thing that is used to control the crowds. It is something that is discussed biblically. And they talk about the people who aren't going to heaven are going to hell, but they don't use it like a whip to, you know, to contain a crowd. Yeah, absolutely. And that is an example, what Martin, Martin Luther was doing. It's an example of a healthy church. Now there may be some things Martin did that were not healthy, um, but right. based on what I know of him, that's what I'm speaking to right now. So I'm going to put a, a little asterisk there of, I am right, not, right. <laughs> not an expert on Martin Luther, <laughs> but that example is excellent because in a healthy church, information is shared people choose what to do with it. There aren't any hard feelings. Like if I offer you information, I offer you evidence, facts, thoughts, opinions, examples, mm -hmm. personal experience. You then choose to either agree, to further investigate, or to immediately disagree. That's your power. It's your right. It's not mine. And I'm good with that. Right. That's what you look for in something that's healthy. And I think it was also a big part of my awakening. I began to notice the strategies of how 
how the pastors were speaking. So one, one example, I went to this church in the South and the preacher went into, for lack of a better way to describe it, it went into a rant against women who had short hair. And I looked around the, the congregation. There's not a single woman in this church that had short hair. So he's, he's preaching to women who aren't even listening to him. And I, I was still very much indoctrinated. I still believed in the religion, et cetera. But in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to trying to picture why does, why does this even matter? He's speaking to people who aren't even, you know, they're not even in the building. They're not even listening. But after escaping and realizing the strategy behind it, he is also putting up this mental boundary, right? He's creating the example of these people that are condemned to hell to contain the people who are inside of his building. Yeah. And how was that? How does that make us then imagining we're, we're in that group? How are we then feeling when we see someone out on the street at the grocery store with short hair? It's right. going to make us look at them and hold a certain immediate view of judgment and potentially fear of interacting with them that we'd somehow be tainted in some way. And so we shouldn't. And so it really, like you said, it really like clinches that barrier between us and the others. Exactly. Um, Next question. So fear tactics are not limited to religious cults. There are several categories of destructive cults from political cults to ideological cults. And even in mainstream media, to some extent, we find that fear is used to captivate the audiences and marketing strategies exist because of the effect that fear has on the reader or the listener. At the same time, fear is natural and some cases can actually be healthy. How do we distinguish the difference between a healthy fear and destructive fear strategies? I think that that example I gave about teaching like a toddler, you know, not to run in front of the street um, will be an example we can go back to, but I want to back up a little bit and say that intentionally arousing fear in someone in order to influence their behavior for the sake of controlling their behavior, minimally that's manipulative at the least it's manipulative and it can easily be destructive. And so, and I'd assert that in any context, including media. And this is different from intentionally trying to arouse someone, arouse fear in someone for the sake of keeping that person safe. Like I said, that would be an example of my three-year-old. But even so, it's much more about information than it is about him being afraid. Like I want him to understand and I want him to make safe decisions. So this isn't I'm just going to make him afraid so that he does what he wants. He does what I want. No, I want him to know the fact and the fact can then lead to fear. So the fact is you could get hit by a car and in terms, he could kind of understand, like you won't see mama and papa again, mm-hmm. you know, so you could get hit by a car and not see mama and papa again. And so I want you to look both ways and ask mama or papa, hold our hand before we cross the street. He may not even feel fear. When I say that, like, I'm not, my goal isn't actually fear. My goal is to put it in a way that he can understand so that he makes an informed decision to the best of his ability as a three-year-old. If he gets scared, that actually really wasn't my goal. That wasn't my primary goal. And that doesn't necessarily even have to happen. Um, For fear to be healthy, it has to be exactly what you said. It's natural. So the information leads to a fearful emotional response. And that's based on legitimate information and not natural consequences that would logically follow. So um, again, if you walk in front of a moving vehicle, you'll likely get hit and you will be injured and you may even die. The goal is to share the facts so that an educated decision can be made, not to manipulate someone into doing something that I want, especially for personal gain. You know, that's for their own safety. And again, I want to end this on pointing out that the fear may not be the emotional response. So if my doctor tells me to watch my sugar intake or I'll get diabetes, I may very well be perfectly happy spending my shortened days eating chocolate cake. (laughs) (laughs) Just be like, I don't care. I'm going to die eating chocolate cake. I'm happy. I'm not scared. Um, So there's still a strong sense of choice there. Right. Does that, does that make sense? 
It, it does. I think that's that's basically how I describe it whenever I'm working with people in the support networks. It You really have to separate what is the fear that is associated to a doctrine and what is the fear that comes naturally. Um, unfortunately, one of the examples that I have is an experience after we escaped the cult. We entered a church that had some very unhealthy attributes and one of the men's groups that I was in, the, um, the leader of the men's group started explaining how anger was a sin and people shouldn't ever get angry. And I, I just looked around the people, you know, the people who are listening, there's some, I'm a, I'm a man, right? I'm going to get angry. And there's people sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, if, if anger is a sin, I've been a sinner my whole life. Right. And um, I, you know, I've, I just, I couldn't agree with that because even the Bible says, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. It's a natural response to the environment, to the, you know, the situation that you're in. Fear is the same thing. Um, one of the examples that I give to the people who are in support groups is the example of a smoker. Persuading a smoker to stop smoking using fear doesn't even work. They're a, it's an addiction. They're going to continue smoking. But yet, this, at the same time, the smokers have an internal fear of getting cancer from smoking. So whenever you're working with a smoker who has an addiction, who has entered into addiction counseling, you don't use fear to lead them out of smoking. You use positive reinforcement and you, you basically explain to them that you know, there are consequences to having smoked for so long and to this addiction, but positively there are also treat cancer can be treatable. It can often be preventable if you were to stop smoking and you lead them toward the positive and you work with them to help conquer the addiction versus spirit versus religious abuse. They take the fear and they they capitalize, they try to control and manipulate through the fear. It's not a positive reinforcement, it's manipulation. So that, that actually leads us into the next question. <clears throat> With the realization that fear strategies were used for manipulation and for undue influence, several former members suffer from trust issues. Uh, you and I have discussed this alone. It's something that we both share in common. If someone that they fully trusted for so long had been abusing their trust for several years, using fear tactics, and others can do the same, how can anyone be trusted? So John, I have a few points I want to make with this. So feel free to like interject as I'm talking, um, if you want to jump in. The number one person to trust and to learn to trust first and foremost is yourself. And this is not to say by any means, but for the record, this is not to say that the victimization you endured was your fault. It's to say that you have the power to learn from it, to further equip yourself, to understand what happened, to make sense of it, how groups such as these operate so you can recognize them and to generally be able to recognize unhealthy leadership and therefore you'll be able to recognize unhealthy relationships in general. So my personal biggest hurdle without question um, was learning to trust my own assessment of a person and a situation. And what I learned to do was to hold on to my initial assessment while I cautiously checked things out. I monitored to see if I was right or not. Um, and that was because I didn't wanna remain shut down to relationships. I wanted the opportunity to have good relationships. I didn't want to be isolated and alone. I wanted that. Um, but I also wanted to exercise a healthy caution and a healthy caution is just smart. Everyone who's listening. Um, I hope that you're not beating yourselves up. If you have this gut feeling of, I don't know, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel right. Um, it could be maybe that you're projecting something from a past experience and it doesn't actually apply. Oftentimes, though, you may have a point and in either you don't want to push yourself so far that you, you lose that sense of healthy caution. So there are many times where I've kicked myself in both ways where I either didn't give someone a shot and I lost out when it could have been a beautiful relationship. Um, 
but I also have times where I didn't trust my gut that I needed to get far away from someone. And I was right. I needed to get far away from someone. And my therapist taught me something that was so affirming and validating. And I want to share it with all of you. He told me that it wasn't, it wasn't that I was just super sensitive to certain things. He said, cause I, I would tell myself that, well, oh, I'm just like being really sensitive to this. You know, there's something wrong with me because I'm, I'm damaged. I'm hurt. I've been, I've been harmed. Um, and so this is just my thing and I need to deal with that. And he said, that's actually even scientifically based on stat. Like that's just not true. That's not how that works. Um, he said, most likely you were actually just way more in tune to when it's happening and you're going to catch it like that. Whereas someone else who hasn't experienced it, isn't going to catch it. And so lean into that. It doesn't mean you have to run away because I'm onto it. Right. So I don't have to be afraid of being controlled and manipulated and lied to because I'm onto it. Right. So I don't need that fear, but I'm not, I also maybe want to check it out a little bit. So I'm going to take note of that and I'm going to check it out. Um, And that for me was incredibly freeing because my husband has a very different experience. And so he, he wouldn't have those same reactions to environments where I would have them. And I'm not kidding you guys. Like I was right every single time. My gut was right on it every single time it proved to be true. And I'm like, that's not because I'm the most intelligent person in the room. It's because of what I've lived through. And I just catch that with people from there. I had to decide you know, humans aren't perfect. So how bad is this? And, you know, do I engage or not? And do I have conversations with people or not? And and things like that. So, I mean, practically speaking, this whole process I'm talking about, it requires time, practice, a willingness and a commitment to asking ourselves how hard questions, like, how am I feeling around this person? What about this person is influencing me to feel this way? Like, what is it that they're doing that that's um, triggering this for me? is this reaction strictly a trigger for my past or is my gut telling me there's something off with this person specifically? And how do I proceed in a way that's cautious without shutting down to something that could serve me yet keeps me feeling protected and safe? Yeah. I, I can't stress enough whenever somebody leaves a situation of religious abuse, how important trust is because in religious abuse, you're in a group that already has constrained boundaries. So you've already limited the number of people that are within your support group. Well, once you leave this, you leave what little support group that you had. And if there's no trust, if you can't trust anyone, now you became a support group member of one. And if you have, if you're married and you have children, in my case, I would have a support group of five. And quite frankly, that's just not enough. You have to trust, you have to build up trust with people. But the way that I handle it when I talk to people in the support networks, trust is something that's earned. It's not something that's given. When somebody says, will you trust me? Well, what reason do you have to trust them? And there has to be a healthy level of caution, but also you have to give them an opportunity to be trusted. So there's a a give and take relationship to build and earn, to let them earn a trust. And if you don't extend your your opportunity to them so that they can be trusted, then obviously they'll never be trusted. So there has to be a little bit of give and take. It is more difficult for people who have escaped religious abuse because there is this, there's this tendency not to trust anyone because you have, um, you know, PTSD or, or other just simple programmed responses that you have to, to people that you learn not to trust them, but in the world outside of religious abuse, this isn't the case. People realize, let them earn the trust. And then once they do, they, they could be found to be trustworthy. Yeah. I have a lot of appreciation for that view. Um, that idea of it's gotta be earned. And again, for me, the more I've looked back I had to, I also, again, I still had to trust myself because I very much felt duped the first time. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm, it's not fair that that was my fault. Um, even if you, whether you're raising it or you come into it in your thirties and you exit in your fifties, I mean, 
someone was trained to try to get you to come into it. And so we need to give them the credit that is due. It's not good credit. Um, so I'm not saying that in a way that faults me or John or anyone else who's listening, but I still had that feeling of, gosh, I didn't know before. Am I going to know this time and needing to build up my own confidence and my own trust in my gauge of a pe- of people and my assessment. Um, and that, that has taken me a long way. Now I feel like I can step into things and be like, I'm going to be okay because I'll, I'll recognize it if it's a problem. All right. Many former members have told me that they still struggle long after leaving their destructive group. Um, most, most former members experience what they call triggers, you know, even during healthy church services after leaving the group by a non-cult religious group. What would you say to a person that has been indoctrinated through fear and is still suffering from that indoctrination? Is this something that will ever end? Yeah, I would say not to give up on the healing process. It takes time. It takes patience, kindness for yourself. We oftentimes talk about being kind towards others and having grace for others. We need to give that to ourselves as well. There is perseverance involved and knowing that sometimes progress means being still. And I want to say that again, people can think that me working on my healing or me progressing looks like I'm constantly in motion. I'm constantly actively doing something, just taking a break and taking a breather, reading a a fun fiction novel, watching a funny movie, going for a walk. That's healing. That's progress. Um, and we need to allow room for that for ourselves. We need to prioritize it as far as, is this something that will ever end? Yeah. The fear does lessen over time and can essentially go away completely though. I will say that we can still find triggers here and there. Like something can come up. It's because we're very much going through a grieving process and grief is a really, it's, it's a tough thing to nail down. Grief is it's, um, it's fluid. And, um, from, as a personal example, uh, my mom died 11 years ago, um, as of the 25th of September, um, this year I passed September 25th. I didn't realize that I had passed September 25th. I didn't realize that it was the anniversary of her death. It was a very, very traumatic, um, situation for me at the time. I didn't notice it had happened. Um, I've had several years where it was like that last year. It was different. Last year was really hard for me. Um, I've had mother's days that were hard mother's days that weren't hard. It's not like they were all hard in the beginning and suddenly they weren't hard anymore. Um, and I may have a hard September 25th, 10 years from now and have the next nine where I don't, there's, that's how grief works. And we have to remember that a part of what we're going through is a legitimate grieving progress process. We're taking, we are taking a lot of losses. Um, when we make this change and we're taking losses of people and community, we're also taking losses of what we thought was real about the world and ourselves and people that we care about. That's a, that's loss of all kinds and it's substantial. And so again, yes, like fear lessons, uh, all of these emotions can lessen that we can go through, but we want to remain open that they may pop back up here and there. And it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean you're not okay. It doesn't mean you failed. It just means this is what that looks like for all people in all contexts. And that's okay. Yeah. One of the things that really helps me is I try to rewire the triggers. I'll take some some traumatic, traumatic event that I know is going to be a trigger. And I try to associate that with a happy memory so that when I think about it, it's not only the bad I'm thinking about, I'm also thinking about the good. And with family in particular, I try to re- try to reassociate my memories of the family, not from what it was like whenever I left the group, which was very traumatic. I try to remember a happy memory about each person which is sometimes it's difficult, but over time, this gets better the more you try to exercise this. And I've also learned to set up boundaries. There are certain family members that honestly, I have no happy memories associated to them. They were my family, but I have really nothing back, nothing that I can go back to, to rewire. And either I've lost the memory to PTSD or they just simply never existed. So. In those cases, I try try not to dwell on their memory. 
uh, it it's becomes like carrying a bucket to a dry well. No matter how many times you go with a bucket, you're going to come up empty. So I, I try to reassociate those to some other memory that isn't even quite related, but somehow, you know, I, I can form a, a memory that is a replacement of the traumatic memory. I think that is incredibly helpful. And I want to add that sometimes um, I have to, first of all, I, I'm going to share this first because it's really what I'm thinking of after, right after my dad passed away, he died in 2007 and I did not know I was in a cult at the time. It took several years beyond that. Um, but my dad was a very abusive man. It was a very difficult relationship, um, between him and really anyone, but between him and I, particularly being the oldest living girl, I did have a, an older sister who died of cancer in her thirties, tragically. Um, of course I was told it was because of her attitude, but that's a different story. Um, so when my dad died, I remember trying to think of positive memories that he and I had together. And John, I could not think of a thing. I couldn't come up with anything. And I was devastated by that. I felt like I was spitting on his memory. Like I was just spitting on him. I'm like, this is horrible. And I wasn't even like angry with him at the time. It's not like I wanted him to die, but I just, all I had was all this awful that kept coming up. And eventually it, you know, it didn't stay that way because we did really, we really did have some good memories. Um, there were just fewer, fewer of them. And the, even in that they're kind of tainted because I, I know the bigger picture of who he was, right. but, um, so I, I really appreciate what you said about that. And yeah, that's where my head went was a specific experience. But as far as triggers specifically, I'd like to end that question on my end anyway with, I do have to remind myself sometimes that although I'm feeling triggered because of a similarity of some kind, it's not necessarily the same. So I do want to question that. And I personally feel like I've already been robbed of enough in my life. I've already had enough stolen for me that should not have been. And so I want to fight for my continued freedom. And sometimes that looks like being still enough to mentally and emotionally process an experience so that I can then look at it through a different lens um, within its proper context. And sometimes it does look like, you know what, that's not going to be the situation for me. I'm going to go in another direction. But yeah. for anyone who resonates with our experiences, we have been robbed of a lot. And yeah. I, I would encourage us to to disallow that and be like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do the hard work and I'm going to lean into this healing process and this growing process, because I'm not going to allow that to continue anymore. It, it is work. And it is a lot of work. Um, I think the last point I would make is that <clears throat> what I've learned in working in the support groups, the vast majority of the trauma, mo the most traumatic experiences that most people face isn't really the person or the event of leaving. It's mostly what are people going to think about me when I leave? Because we were indoctrinated to think about people outside of the cult more than we were about growth. It, it fit the entire, if you look at the criteria of what makes a healthy church, not a single bullet point is in most of these religious abusive, religiously abusive churches. So they're trained to think about other people outside of the group. And when they leave, they become the other, the outsider, right? So most of the fear, most of the pain is for what will people think? And it really goes back to the trust statement I made. Whenever people are experiencing this, again, I say trust is something earned, not given. And that boundary does not exclude family. When family are the ones who are giving you this painful experience, can you trust your family? Are your family the ones who's causing the most issues for you? And sometimes it's it's healthy to even separate from the family for a period of time and then let that, tr that trust be reestablished if it can. What advice do you have for people in the support networks as it relates to the fear of hell? So again, for everyone listening, um, I'm going to respond to this based on um, an Orthodox Christian worldview. And when I say that, I'm talking about a biblical Christian worldview. So this is holding um, the Bible to a, a high uh, standard. And 
the Bible's really clear about what's necessary in order to go to heaven instead of going to hell. And it's very clear. And it's also very simple. There's really one thing, and that is to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So from there, we are instructed that we're to do our best to love God the most. Um, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. But even with those, there's grace available to us when we when we ask for it, you know, we're not perfect. So if I got really mad and I stuck a tire in, or a nail in my neighbor's tire or something, you know, I can't apologize for that. I'd be like, I'm genuinely sorry. That was not what I should have done. There's grace for that. You know, we apologize and we're able to move forward. Um, so that's it. There's no support in scripture for the need to believe in anyone else no other prophet that you have to follow, no new special revelation that you have to adhere to. This is very, very straightforward and simple. Yeah, the, the best advice that I try to give is that once, once you leave a group such as this, you know, it's religious abuse in its, in its essence is manipulation. And when you experience a healthy group, you start to slowly discover the differences between being manipulated and being encouraged. And most of the fear that people have as it relates to going to hell is the manipulation. If they experience a church that is healthy and is encouraging spiritual growth and even personal growth, it's, it's again, positive reinforcement. It's not manipulation through fear. So just the experience alone helps alleviate a lot of that fear. <clears throat> but there's a period of time in which people are transitioning. And this is where I try to focus with information. One of the greatest fears that any person has is the fear of the unknown. And until you understand the concept of hell and the concept of spiritual growth and encourage, you know, encouraging sermons, that fear is going to exist. You have to arm yourself with information. And one of the things that helped me personally with that fear of the hell that was indoctrinated was simply understanding what is hell. Um, I, we were trained in a very manipulative way such that many of the passages of scripture used to give us this indoctrinated fear of hell were not even about hell in the first place. The Bible itself is, it's, it's a library. It's not a book. We think of it as a book because it's in one bound, but one, <clears throat> one bound um, cover, but it is literally a library of books with different genres. There is music, there's poetry, there's history, there's law, there's, you know, everything from ways in which you can keep mold from growing in your house. But that's one of one of the the civil laws in the old you know in the old covenant. So understanding the Bible for what it is and understanding hell as it is actually described in the Bible alleviates this fear. For example, the Valley of the Shadow of Death was a real physical place that you could visit. You can visit it today. It's the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom or Gehenna, and this. This was often used in metaphors by the ancients, not only in the Bible, but even outside of, outside of the Bible. But we were indoctrinated to believe that these concepts were related to hell, not understanding the metaphor that they were actually being used for. And once you wipe all of that indoctrination out and understand what the text actually says, it's not manipulation through fear. It's more of understanding what the author is saying. And I think to kind of bring this home for this idea of, you know, the topic that we're, we're covering today, if I leave my specific group, I've been told I'll go to hell. Will that happen again? Like you just gave more detail on John. There's, there's no evidence for that. And hell isn't, um, it's not a place you're going <laughs> to, again, we're speaking from, okay, are you just going to wind up in hell by accident? I mean, it's, it's a, it would be a choice to go there. Just like we were talking about choices. Mm -hmm. You would get to choose if you want to go there or not. 
just like I get to choose if I want to eat cake, even if I'm diabetic or not, like I get to choose where I want to go. This isn't something that's going to just happen to you and you're going to be shocked and you'd have no idea that it was going to happen. So when people are trying to threaten that of you, if you know what the Bible says about it, then you know where you're choosing to then land on this issue, on this conversation. So it's not, we're not just going to be shocked of, oh my goodness, I, I, I did what the Bible said and I still wound up in hell. I mean, there is a verse some people may think of, I don't know if we want to go that nuanced in this conversation, but um, again, you get to say if you, if you want to or not, you get to make a choice. Some teacher on earth today does not get to make that choice for you. They don't have that authority and God doesn't have all of this evidence in this whole Bible written so that people can have no idea and be totally ill-informed and wind up somewhere and they had no idea what happened. I mean, we have the information available to us. We get to make an educated decision. And what I love about that is that's healthy leadership. That's what we're just talking about. Healthy leadership is here's the information you choose what to do with it. There's natural consequences based on what you decide to do. You're fully informed. And so this, this model was already given to us. And this is what our leaders should be showing as well. And there's no leader walking around in this planet right now that can tell you that you're going to hell because you walked away from their group. They just flat out don't have the authority to do so. Thank you, Naomi. I, I hope everyone has enjoyed this first episode. And if you have questions, please send them to us. You can send them to me at john at william-branham.org. And I will be including them in the upcoming episodes. And again, we hope you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.